This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. My name is Rob Minot. And no, it's not. Jo- <laughs> and joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Me. Uh, Mr. Steve Barkley. I deny everything. And uh, joining us a little bit later, Mr. Rick Chant. So just insert something somewhat witty right there. Mon- monkey sounds. <laughs> it's your monkey sounds there. <laughs> Actually, sure. if you do that, if you just have, you know, and joining us later, Mr. Rick Chance. <laughs> that would be hysterical. <laughs> that would be so funny. And he would never know it if he doesn't listen to the podcast. I'm writing, so. I'm writing that down. It would, it would only be good until Shan told either, him about either, it. Either that or like the sound of like a prison prison door slamming or something. <laughs> uh, hey, how are you guys doing? Good. It's Wednesday. It was my first day back to work this week, so it was all right. Yeah, did you, so you, you took a, a little bit of an extended long weekend, didn't you? I did, yeah. What, I took what, the two off. What'd you do? Went grocery shopping. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yep. that is kind of like a highlight these days, isn't it? Uh, typically, we do PC Express, so we order and we just go pick it up. But we had a few odds and sods we had to pick up too. So yeah, that wasn't bad. You know, it's interesting though because up until a week or two ago, um, anytime we would go into the store, probably ninety percent of people were wearing masks, and this time yep. it was fifty fifty. Really, there are less people wearing masks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. definitely less people wearing masks now. Oh, see, this is that's not good, guys. Well, it's okay because for the last three, four days, there's been zero community transmission. Yeah, but there's been what? one outbreak in an old folks' home in Mission. That is it for BC. Hmm. Yeah, but still, I feel like if we all wear masks, then it's just we can we can maintain that. Yeah, yeah the ma- the masks don't protect you though <laughs> no that's true but if everybody's wearing them then nobody's passed listen it i have gla- i wear glasses everybody <laughs> and so when i wear a mask inevitably what happens is my glasses fog up there's no technology <laughs> out there like speaking of some technology that needs to be developed they need already to- done what do you yeah, mean you fog spray for like ski goggles and what masks and <sighs> you can just yeah. it's a spray you can also just spit on the inside of them and wipe it off, and it'll uh, keep them from fogging. Really? Yep. Okay, I'm writing this down. Really, do I have some spray? Is it just a little bit of dish? Spit? Little bit of dish soap will keep them from fogging. What? Yep. How did I not know this? Just rub it on, wipe it off. Like, like literally, just so I just take some palm olive and just. Yep. Make a film, I guess, and then yep. rin- then rinse it off. Yep. Interesting. Look at that. People were learning stuff today. Also, years ago, my business partner and I, when we owned a uh, paintball field, yeah. uh, put uh, little small masks in our paintball, or little little small masks, we put little small fans in our paintball masks, 
with uh, 9-volt batteries so that uh, it would uh, circulate the air to keep them from fogging up. Really? So, yeah, if you want me to uh, send you a paintball mask, I can you know, <laughs> Let's do it. set you up. Uh, and, oh, hey, look who has just joined us, fellas. Uh, it's Mr. Rick Chant. Act like a bad case of some STD. <laughs> STD. Yeah. I never get tired of that joke, sir. Yeah, you pick up all kinds of stuff in prison. Not <laughs> <laughs> just the soap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Hey, it's going to be like that, is it? It's going to be like that, I'm afraid. Yeah, for anybody who hasn't heard our anniversary show, just stop listening now and go listen to our anniversary show, <laughs> and you'll know... Of once, whence we speak. Yes. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yes, Rob. Uh, what are we? Uh, what the heck are we doing today? Today we are talking with a friend of Canas Techs, Canadian Assistive Technologies, Mr. Tyson Reddy. Tyson Reddy is a young man who lost his sight to LHON, mm -hmm. and I can't pronounce what it is, so look it up. <laughs> Lee, oh boy, Lieber's uh, hereditary uh, optic neuro. No, hang on. Neuropathy. Neuropathy. Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. There, there you go. Yeah. Kaboom. I am terrible with those. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them. <laughs> well, there's another. There's another Lieber's out there too, which is like Lieber's congenital amaurosis uh, or something. I, I can't remember the name of that one either. I'm murdering that one. Right. Yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting to get Tyson on the show. You know, he he grew up um, skiing in the backcountry. He was an avalanche professional, and his sight, he's had to adapt and incorporate some technology into his daily life mm -hmm. and kind of relearn how to do some things. So. I thought, let's get him on and hear what he has to share. Well, I support your decision, sir, and, I, and I'm happy that you're back setting us up with guests. Are you now? Yeah, I am. Absolutely, because we are so boring on our own. <laughs> yeah, I think... How much, how much did listenership fall when, uh, when Ryan left the program? Yeah, it, was, it was considerable. It was, yeah, it was I think we would call that a, a, a plummet. <laughs> plummet in the ratings 10 percent of nothing is still nothing right that's right um it was yeah it was it was like uh give me, give me what's a, what's a tv show where they just they brought on like somebody's cousin or something and that became they replaced welcome back you mean Potter. you mean it's where like they like jumped the shark yeah exactly it's like when <laughs> when Joni and chachi got together with their own show <laughs> and it was terrible <laughs> Uh, yes, so we will uh, be talking to Tyson a little bit later. Uh, IBM has released a open source tool that uh, for developers that help make their apps more accessible. Yay! Yay. That's IBM right. has been releasing tools for years. Yep. I don't know that they fired a couple people I knew. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, another inside joke. We're doing a deep dive into inside jokes this week, folks. <laughs> Uh, no, they are, uh, it, the tool is called the IBM Equal Access Toolkit, and there is a accessibility checker that goes along with it. It's a, it's a small thing, and it's only as good if, if developers actually use it, but again, we're making it more convenient for developers to actually go in and check their app when they're in the process of building it. It's going to make the accessibility of, of any given app that much 
more of a painless process because it's not going to have to try to adapt it after the fact. Yeah, I think anything that you know will aid in development of more accessible apps, um, you know, is is beneficial to all of us. You know, at some point, it would be really nice if you know the Googles and Apples of the world would just lock down their store and say, if, it's, if you don't pass the accessibility checker we have, you're not getting in the store. But we're not there yet. Yeah. So. Well, I don't know. Do you think we'll ever get there? I mean, I think that's a great idea. I mean, and they should have done this years ago. I mean, the fact that we're talking about and and lauding a uh, accessibility, you know, toolbox like this um, in the year 2020, when apps have been around for 10 years, um, you know, this is something that, that that should have been developed long ago. It should have been, but I, you know, we are seeing advancements in accessibility and awareness and accessibility grow year over year. So, you know, anything like this is beneficial. Okay, is anybody else noticing this? Ryan is stealing my my gig. He, now he's the optimist. What is going on? Last week it was all about him stealing my lines. Ryan's he's, back. He's like being Mr. Optimist. I don't know what's going on here, but we're gonna have to fire him again. Well, then I'll be negative. Look at the webcam. <laughs> Sorry. You can't see the, the webcam. webcam. All we can see is oh. your ugly mug. Oh, yeah, that's right. You turned your camera off, you bastard. The camera off? The camera is off. Yeah. There we go. I think, I, think the Velcro, <laughs> I think the Velcro gloves and the sheep are trying to get up the stairs, but that's okay. Oh, God. All right. Anyways, we have to give them credit for, for doing it. But, you know, at the same time, it is a little bit frustrating that, um, that well, it's, it's so far after the fact. You know, the tools have been around, and IBM is probably just another one that's joining the party, right? So, But no, but we it, that is an interesting idea that, you know, it, we could get to a place where accessibility is just um, a, a requirement. Do you think Apple or Google would ever go for that? I think Apple might. Um, you know, I, I don't have a perfect example off the top of my head, but... You know, there are other companies that have, you know, approved products that, you know, dealers, suppliers, vendors, whatever, can purchase from. And so I don't see why Apple or Google, especially Apple, who is so into accessibility anyway, right. um, and even Amazon for that matter, you know, say, okay, you know, you've got whatever, 90 days, 120 days to make your apps accessible before we lock the store. And you have to show that your app passes our accessibility checker before we let you back in. I would think that, that a simple accessibility pass, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be out of the question. What would, the other thing that would be really nice to have is some sort of category, I guess, in the app stores that says accessible apps. You know, I downloaded yeah. the, the Twitch TV app on my iPhone the other day because we have a, a musician that we listen to pretty much every night at six who streams on Twitch live and lo and behold, the app is, the app is accessible, hmm. but you know, you just don't know what app, it's hit and miss, right? And who wants to yeah. spend cents, five ninety nine, ten ninety nine, twenty bucks on an app just to find out it doesn't work. That's true. That's actually a really good idea. Like, you know, for the, the developers who have gone through the process of, you know, going through the, through an accessibility checker and, you know, checked enough of the boxes. Yeah. They get like a accessibility badge. Yeah. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting idea. You should float that. 
flow that is a great idea yeah too bad apple weren't apple is in our shit list so we're not gonna we're not gonna share that copyright copyright ryan so you can't 2020 yeah accessibilitybadge.com grab it steve grab it (laughs) (laughs) can't have it no we wouldn't do that we wouldn't we wouldn't hold back the world just to be petty although it's tempting all right well listen we've babbled enough let's uh let's go ahead and bring on tyson all right joining us now is tyson reddy hey ryan how are you so why don't we just start out uh well yeah why don't you give us a little bit of a, a snapshot of of who the heck tyson is yeah sure um so i guess uh the most interesting thing for me to talk about would be uh what i've been doing for work in uh, in the winter over the past 10 years um i'm a level three member of the canadian ski guide association and a professional member of the canadian avalanche association so backcountry skiing is is pretty much what uh, fills my winters uh most recently I was working for Great Canadian Heli Skiing, and I've worked for a few other heli skiing operations and cat skiing operations in BC. And um, I was actually part of a three-man team that was hired by a Chinese businessman to go over to China and start uh, China's first heli skiing operation. Oh, that cool. Was, uh, that was a few winters ago. So that was a pretty exciting adventure. And then uh, my summers are a little bit less exciting. I'm a, a journeyman welder and uh, and a class one driver. And uh, so did kind of whatever I had to, to to fill the summers before winter would come around again. Now, mind you, this is all pre-vision loss mm. uh, in the, uh, so it'd be fall of 2018. I lost the majority of my vision in my right eye, and then in summer of 2019, I lost the majority of the vision in my left eye, and a short time after that was diagnosed with uh, a mitochondrial disease, and my vision loss is characteristic of something called Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. Right. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. This last winter, I did not work in the avalanche industry as a result, but I'm uh, looking at a variety of different avenues to get back into that industry. Well, you can still jump out of helicopters, right? Snow's soft. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can definitely still ski. Um, You know, uh, I very much felt like when I got back on skis, I was you know, learning how to ski again to a certain extent. But uh, I got uh, a few number of days in this winter, not as many as I'm used to, but definitely headed in a good direction. And uh, each time I get out, I'm I'm skiing stronger like I had the previous day. So, you know, the idea of being a a ski guide is probably not what's going to happen for me in the future. I'm now being guided as opposed to being the guide. But... uh, yeah, definitely still, I think there's still some opportunities for me to be involved in that industry in some way, and I'm just in the process of exploring how that's how that could work. I'm stepping back a little bit, uh, talking a little bit about the about LHON, um, because it is, it is a fairly rare condition, um, and it's yeah. also fairly unique because it's, you know, it's, it's degenerative, but it's but it works a lot faster than some of the other degenerative eye conditions um, that are associated with, say, old age. 
Um, what was that? What was it like for you? Um, I mean, how how fast did did you lose that vision in in the one eye, and then how fast in, in the second eye? And, and the first eye took about two weeks to go from twenty twenty to um, you know what is fairly significant vision loss. And um, I had glasses when I was quite young, and my right eye was the bad eye. So when it started, the first few days, it was just a bit blurry. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm going to have to look at getting glasses again, you know, go to an optometrist or something. But then after the course of a two-week period, I had lost most of the vision of that eye. And so I thought, wow, this is not, uh, you know, something that I need to see an optometrist for. I need to, I need to go see a doctor. And one thing that was um, very different for me than what you'll hear from other LHON patients is it's often described as painless vision loss, which was not the case for my right eye. I, I felt this um, constant feeling of pressure in the right side of my head as well as pain on movement. So I had gone to a doctor thinking, you know, there's something, you know, there, there's something more than just a vision problem here. And I was uh, initially misdiagnosed as having MS. Um, they thought it was optic neuritis. And so I underwent some treatment that would typically be given to an MS patient. And, uh, and then later on, it was determined I did not have MS and they couldn't come up with, uh, with a root cause for my vision loss. And then the vision loss plateaued. And then uh, in July... Um, the left eye presented kind of differently. It was it developed first as a, a light sensitivity problem. And I was working at a gas plant um, northeast of Edmonton at the time and welding and was just having a really, really tough time doing a decent job at that. And it got to the point where a couple of my coworkers commented that um, the welds I was producing were were not acceptable. And so I thought, wow, I got uh, I gotta maybe, go see a doctor about this eye too. And then riding my motorcycle from the gas plant back into town at the end of the day, um, I almost rode all the way through town without realizing that I had gotten to the edge of town. I went straight through the, the four-way intersection wow. of the town and I thought, oh, this is a real problem. Probably should not be riding this motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. So rode the motorcycle to the hospital, had, uh, had a doctor check my eye out. Uh, the parking lot of this hospital was totally empty after doing the eye exam. It's a very small hospital. He looks out the window, and the only vehicle in the parking lot is a motorcycle. So he puts two and two together, and he says, did you, uh, did you ride a motorcycle here? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, not, uh, maybe not the thing to do. You need to go into Edmonton to see, uh, to see uh, some specialists. So I went from there, and then from that exam, it was about a, a week, week and a half before I was at the same point with my left eye that it was with my right, a very... Uh, substantial um, central blind spot and then uh, you know a pretty significant deterioration of my peripheral vision as well so it sounds like it took them a while to actually diagnose LHON yeah that's right and and now that I know quite a bit more about the condition that's fairly common um, the average time uh, from vision loss to diagnosis is generally between 8 and 12 months yeah, I think um, because it is, as you mentioned earlier, it's quite a rare condition. Um, you know, if I had had a family history of the vision loss, it would be a little more straightforward. But I'm the first person in my family, so yeah, there was no none of the more obvious indicators that it could be LHON. Is, is, is that one where you you have to confirm it with a genetic test? 
There's a couple different ways they can do it um, because it is a mitochondrial disorder. There's something in muscle tissue they can see. So some people get diagnosed um, from a muscle biopsy, some through genetic testing. Um, however, the genetic testing is quite expensive. So if there's uh, a case of a family history, then that's often enough for a diagnosis. But in my case, I had some genetic testing done at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And I think one of the reasons that there was a bit of a, a delay to diagnosis is that there are three primary mutations that are more well understood and documented. But the mutation that I have is a very rare and lesser known um, mutation. So generally they would test for the three primary mutations, in which case um, I would have tested negative for that. So there was a very uh, a broader spectrum genetic test that was available out of the Mayo Clinic. And so that's how they came across it. Wow. So um, being it's mitochondrially passed, your mom show has no vision loss? Yeah, that's right. There's no vision loss on my maternal bloodline. So, yeah, that was a big factor in the, in the delay to diagnosis, I think. Yeah, it is a it is a very rare condition, but uh, but um, every now and then, for some reason, there seem to be clusters of it. Um, there's, uh, I think, uh, three cases of it in young kids on uh, mid Vancouver Island, all in a very small region, and that's unusually high, I believe. Hmm. Yeah, and there's um, a region somewhere in Quebec that has a, a much higher rate of LHON as well, for whatever reason. So you're right, there is certain communities that uh, show higher numbers of LHON than, than other parts of the world. I think um, in the United States, they say it affects roughly 1 in 50,000. Wow. But other parts of the world, the numbers are, are greater or smaller than that. So what was that process like for you emotionally? Um, you know, when I lost vision in the right eye, it was seemingly not a big deal. You adapt quite quickly to vision in one eye and life carried on as normal. And I still, um, I still heli skied about 70 days that winter blind in one eye. So at first it was really not a big deal. And then when the second eye went, obviously that's when it becomes a very big deal. And uh, initially, my neuro-ophthalmologist had said to me that um, the first six months would be very challenging. And I remember thinking that, you know, I don't think the first six months is going to be very challenging. I think the rest of my life is going to be very challenging. Um, but now we're coming up on almost a year since both eyes were affected. And, um, and yeah, and I'm starting to see more and more what she was talking about. You know, it does take quite a while to adjust, but, you know, over time you kind of start to come to terms with it and you think about it less and then you learn, you know, different ways to, to do the things you used to do. And, you know, we've got the, you know, the various systems around the house so that I don't, you know, lose things and so that I can use the, you know, the microwave and the oven and whatever. And, um, and then obviously the, the bits of technology I've gotten from you guys, um, you know, I'm, I'm still definitely still in the learning phase with uh, the JAWS software. Um, feels like just about every time I need to use the computer, I got to email Ryan. Um, <laughs> and uh, so making, making some headway, but it's a, it's a, 
it's a tough program to learn. And then I got that OR cam from you guys as well. And uh, that's been a pretty, uh, a pretty cool piece of technology to have. Prior to getting that, if I went grocery shopping, I'd just be shopping for items that I could, you know, that I could feel, right? You know, if it feels like a banana, well, it's probably banana. Um, you know, and then if I wanted to get any more complex than shopping, I'd have to bring someone with me or ask for help from, from people at the store or whatever. But, um, you know, now I can go shopping with that OR cam and, you know, I can, you know, browse for whatever different kind of coffee and all this stuff. So, you know, yeah, you get that technology, you learn different ways to do things and things are, things are getting better and getting back out in the mountains definitely makes, a huge difference um you know the first time i went backcountry skiing uh was uh was a real big day for me you're in banff right um i'm in radium radium right oh nice how have you found the support yeah. community there you know it's a real small community with not a lot going on um so you know i i would go to the cnib office in calgary so that was a challenge, you know, and I also had to see, uh, you know, my neurologist and my neuro-ophthalmologist and all these different doctors there in Calgary as well. So early on, it was definitely a lot of trips to Calgary. Well, you're, you're not um, alone in the boat of uh, having to pick up the phone and call whomsoever when Ryan uh, had his accident. Um, I, I'm sure we were on speed dial, Steve and I, so... <laughs> right. How do I just format C colon Ryan? It's easier. But I want to know. No, no, Ryan. Just format C colon. It's easier. Yeah, I have to say, Tyson. You know, in in the time that you know we've been working with you, you've always had a positive attitude in all of our dealings. And I know, like Rick is saying, you know, I, I'm probably blind. Lost my sight in an accident. And there are days I'm still pissed off, days I'm still angry. And you don't seem to let it bother you too much. You just seem to have this positive outlook and that, you know, it is what it is and I'm going to get back out and, and do what I want to do. And, you know, I give you a lot of credit for that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, I definitely, I definitely try to. And, yeah, you know, I do have those moments where, you know, I think, ah, I'd really like to be a, really like to be a ski guide again. But, um, yeah, you know, I just try and, you know, focus on the fact doesn't doesn't do me much good to, to sit around the house thinking about uh, thinking about heli skiing. So, yeah, so get out and maybe, uh, you know, I'm now having to get to the top of the mountain under my own power instead of uh, heli skiing. But, but, yeah, backcountry skiing is, is definitely an activity that uh, that is doable with a visual impairment. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because... Um... I, I find that really fascinating. Like, so, so what exactly have you been, been doing since the vision loss in terms of a, um, some of the, the different skiing? Um, well, prior to the, prior to the vision loss, I was still in the, you know, still more interested in backcountry skiing than skiing at the resort. So I've tried to kind of maintain that, um, Kootenai Pass, um, the Samuel Creston Pass, that's a place where um, I first did most of my ski touring after losing my vision um, because it was a place that I was quite familiar with. So, you know, I could have a little bit more of an, uh, an interactive role with the decision-making and stuff like that because I can still, 
you know, picture the terrain in my head and I can still think about the weather and think about where the good skiing is going to be. So that was a place right away that I wanted to go back to because I thought I'd feel, you know, a little more comfortable and confident there. Um, although recently I've been kind of branching out a bit more and I've been skiing some, some more terrain that is less familiar to me. Um, in fact, just uh, two weeks ago, me and a couple of friends um, skied off the top of Jumbo, which is in the Purcell Mountains just west of here. And it's quite a significant peak. It's the fourth tallest in the Columbia Mountains or the uh, second tallest in the Purcell Range. And from the summit to the valley floor makes for nearly a 6,000-foot ski descent. So it's a very, uh, very significant objective, something that I had wanted to ski um, for a lot of years. And it's just tough to get the right conditions from valley floor to mountaintop and, and to get good access and good weather. And there's a number of things that have to align. So um, doing that a couple of weeks ago, that was a really, really big accomplishment for me because it would have been a big accomplishment without a visual impairment. Did you but, uh, video footage? Um, no video footage. I did get uh, a couple of photos. Um, a friend took uh, a photo of me on the top, and uh, a number of people have told me it's it's quite an impressive photo. And being that I have recreated in the area prior to my vision loss, I can you know I, I haven't seen the Purcells from necessarily that angle, but I have seen that terrain before, and I do know that it is a it is a pretty impressive place to stand. Yeah, I just pulled it up on uh, Google, and I'm on the uh, Jumbo Glacier Resort page. It's beautiful. It's oh amazing. yeah, so that got the that got the no go, the final no go this summer, which I've got you know mixed uh, mixed feelings about. But it's definitely cooler to stand up there without a chairlift. Oh, that's the resort that everybody was up in arms about up there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, Sorry, of course. What's the story? What? Oh, I, for, I forgot all about that. There, for for years, when you've been driving down certain roads, there's these signs up here, no resort or, you know, very, a variety of different signs opposing this resort. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know it had, it had been officially nixed. Yeah, it was kind of uh, a go, no go thing back and forth for probably, probably almost 30 years. And I think, yeah, this summer they got the final no go so um yeah i mean it would have been a, a very interesting resort but on the other hand it's it's kind of kind of cool to be back there be back there with with nobody around so not so it sounds like you've got your hands full in sort of adjusting and and you know there's there's some steep lear learning curves ahead of you of course but that being said do you, is are there any plans on on doing something outdoorsy what 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 are your what are your goals yeah that's um you know my goals are definitely to stay involved in the in the avalanche and backcountry skiing industry in some way um so i'm looking into different avenues as to how i could be involved as a an avalanche forecaster um perhaps so you know with the jaw software um i can access a lot of the the material that i would need for that job so different weather forecasts um, as well as access to data from remote weather stations um, the industry uses something called the infox and it's a information exchange system um, amongst uh, organizations that are operating an avalanche train so every cat skiing heli skiing operation or ski hill um, 
highways, mining, logging operations, any any company that's involved in, in avalanche terrain will make daily submissions as to um, what they've seen for avalanche activity in their area, changes in the snowpack, weather observations, things like that. So um, using the software to access the InfoX and uh, the forecasts and the Romedra stations, you know, there's the potential that I could be, uh, be part of a forecasting team. The idea of being out in the field and, and digging snow profiles and um, that sort of thing is, um, I, I don't really see that being an option for me in the future, but um, doing all the, uh, all the collection of data and analyzing the data and, and putting together the forecast, I think that's something that I can still have a big role in. So um, I'm hoping that I can uh, line up some work like that for next winter. Um, I've also been emailing with some companies that produce um, climbing and skiing equipment. So I'm looking at the avenue of, you know, maybe being part of a marketing team or something like that. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm still out in the mountains and, and doing some really interesting things. So I'm thinking that I can provide a more interesting narrative for some of these companies. You know, I can produce marketing material that doesn't just tell the story of some athletes being in the mountains, you know, accomplishing, you know, interesting goals. It's the narrative is now using their equipment to, you know, regain a lost lifestyle, so to speak. So I'm thinking there's, uh, you know, there's potentially some opportunities there. Definitely. Adapted heli skiing. <laughs> Yeah, so it's interesting you say that. I've actually <laughs> talked with a couple of friends of mine who are guides, and you know, some of them have taken visually impaired people heli skiing before, so it's not entirely unheard of. However, a full heli skiing program of blind skiers has not been done, and uh, there are a couple of guides that have expressed some interest. So uh, who knows? Maybe I uh, maybe I will be back to guiding heli skiing. Maybe I'll be the first blind heli ski guide guiding blind heli skiers you know i i think that if if you actually organized it i think you would discover that there are nuts from all over the globe that would want to do that once once we come out of lockdown of course yep yep absolutely yeah, i think so yeah I, I think it's i think it actually is a a real option um it's just going to take uh oh yeah it doesn't sound like I that doesn't to, happen to figure overnight out the funding and figure out which which heli skiing company wants to wants to take on the liability of that program but i think it's it's doable like i said there are some people that have expressed interest yep. so you know have we're you, a long ways off from getting it off the ground but i don't think it's impossible not at all yeah have, have you been in touch with uh canadian blind sports or, or any of the provincial um affiliates um i have not um, I did reach out to uh, a company called Rocky Mountain Adaptive. They're based out of Canmore, I believe. And they do lots of mountain sports with people of a variety of different disabilities, not just uh, visual impairments. And um, they didn't have any, any backcountry programs. It's all resort-based. And it also seemed um, quite cost prohibitive, I think, their price for you know, for one individual to do a full day program with them at Louise was like $290. So, so yeah, I know that um, Panorama is the closest resort to me here and they have a program through the Canadian Association of Disabled Skiing, I think it is. And um, so they're able to take some, some blind people out skiing. 
Um, but those programs just didn't seem quite in line with what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how I would go about it, but I'm, I'm hoping, you know, in the future that I can create some um, more backcountry oriented programs for blind skiers. The ski, uh, ski touring and, and backcountry skiing is just a completely different experience than skiing at the resort. And I think it, um, you know, it offers this, this far greater sense of accomplishment you know, when you've gotten yourself to the top of the mountain and, and the ski quality, when, you know, you're not dealing with groomers and moguls, you're dealing with these these untouched slopes. And um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a, a really cool, some really cool opportunities that could exist there. And, you know, I've got the contacts within the industry. So, yeah, I think there's some, hopefully some possibilities down the road. Have you ever considered uh, competitive Paralympic skiing? I have not. Um, you know, it, it has been mentioned to me a couple of times by different people that that's something that I should maybe look into, but, um, that type of competitive skiing has never really appealed to me. And, and that really hasn't changed. Um, I can see myself, you know, continuing to, to push myself in the backcountry and, and tackle bigger objectives. But, uh, I think that's where, that's more where my goals lie than, than uh, competitive skiing. I have a skiing question then, um, and this may be a stupid question, uh, but because I've been skiing twice in my life. Uh, but what's the difference between backcountry skiing and cross-country skiing? So, when uh, when we say backcountry skiing, what we're talking about is, you know, heading out into the mountains somewhere, not within resort boundaries, and hiking to the top of a mountain. When people are talking about cross-country skiing, they're often, you know, in, in low-angle terrain, you know, hiking around the valley bottom sort of thing. So right. when we're ski touring or backcountry skiing, you know, your goal is often to get to the top of a mountain and, uh, and ski fresh tracks from the top to the bottom, whereas cross-country skiing, your goal is to, you know, Go in circles do a few laps around the track, cover a certain amount of uh, right. a certain number of kilometers in a day, whatever. I honestly don't know a whole lot about cross-country skiing. I've tried it once and I knew it wasn't for me. And that was, you know, that's kind of the extent of my knowledge. But uh, yeah, when you're backcountry skiing, the, the goal is to get somewhere where there's an exciting ski down to be had. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because cross-country skiing is kind of, it, it also kind of, well, I'm going to insult a lot of people if I say this. Hold on, never mind. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shut up, Rob. Well, I was going to say, it seems We're to trying be, to build audience, not lose it. It seems to be popular with the older generation. You know, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's a great workout. I, I do have friends that are that are ski guides that are interested in, in cross-country skiing, and, and they claim it's a great workout. And, uh, yeah, that's fine if that's what they're into. Yes. My dad's generation, everybody was a backcountry skier because, well, there weren't any ski lifts. <laughs> so anybody, anybody who skied, you you walked to the top of the mountain, you found yourself a place to ski. Yeah, what a time. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. But yeah, it's definitely it's a it's a very uh, fast growing sport right now. Um, you know, skiing at the resort has just gotten incredibly expensive. You can spend a lot of money on a lift ticket. Um, and at the end of the day, you're just not getting the ski quality that you could have had in the backcountry um, most days. So, you know, it's a sport that's that's growing, yeah, really, uh, really quickly. 
Yeah, at the resorts, you got all kinds of knobs like Rob and I, who have only done it like two, three times in their life, <laughs> lying in the middle of the runs. You got to go around us. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, that's right. Just got to get down to the bottom of the mountain once so that they, they have an excuse to go hit the hot tub. That's right. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I'm really good at the apres ski. <laughs> the what? Right. The the after ski. Oh, the after ski. I think. Yeah. They said apres ski, and I thought that was French I, for something. It is. It's French for after ski. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, now I've pissed off Quebec now, too. <laughs> but if you do an apres ski instead of an, instead of an after ski, you get a charcuterie board. Yeah, it's an important part of the process. Yeah. No, you know what? I think you're right. I think that there's, there's definitely an appetite for for what you're, what you're talking about because there are people out there there's a, a huge segment of of visually impaired people that are adventure seekers and want to do things something that they've never tried before or something that pushes their limits and, and challenges their boundaries so yeah you you you've set it up and they will come yeah i think so i think it's, it's a very attainable goal because um you know backcountry skiing doesn't have to be challenging skiing there is you know there is low angle easy skiing out there in the backcountry so anybody that can ski can ski in the backcountry and i mean you spend a lot more time hiking than you do skiing so uh, if you got the physical fitness to get up there then it's uh, it's a very very attainable goal mm. one of the questions i have for you tyson is that i'm sure you've done a lot of research into this is there a piece of technology that you would love to see become available that it that doesn't exist now yeah actually uh that's a good question there is one thing that i've really struggled with is um is maps when you're you're thinking about another objective you're you're looking at a particular mountain you're trying to plan out your route to the top um you know a, a big tool that we all use is a topographic map and um, I just haven't come across anything yet that can relay the information that a topographic map is presenting to someone with a visual impairment. Um, and I don't know how something like that would work, but that would be, that would be amazing to be able to, you know, still have that ability to, to somehow interpret a topographic map to see all the terrain that, you know, that you intend on traveling through and to still have that interactive role in, uh, in route planning. And yeah, so that would be, that would be something that I'd really like to see in the future. And I'm not sure how it would work, but, uh, I would love to be able to, to read a map again. Well, now, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, uh, I just added to our site today the uh, the graffiti tablet from Orbit, and this this is probably not a viable solution for you, but uh, it is a uh, uh, graphical tablet uh, that um, has eight different levels of height on the uh, on the dots. It's like a, it's a tactile tablet. Sorry, and okay. uh, um, they they are using it for for mapping, but I don't really think it uh um you wouldn't get the detail a topic yeah I, I don't think you'd get the kind of detail you would want from a from a topical map 
And also, it's uh, $20,000. <laughs> oh, okay. So A bit out know. of my price range. I think that's the right direction. Like, I think you would need more than more than eight different levels. Well, I know you would need more than eight different levels, but yeah. that probably is the right, um, the right direction to go. But yeah, you would need to be you would need to be a little more more um, involved in that. But yeah, plus you'd yeah, have to get the like mapping that. data into it as well, and that that's you know it it doesn't have that. So hmm. that's a that's a whole different issue. Well, maybe someday it will. That's right. Yeah, who knows? That who knows? Don't know. Hey, it kind of got wheel spinning there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I could if I could get twenty grand together for it, but uh, I'd pay a decent price tag for for a device that could allow me to read a map again. Challenge yeah. out there to inventors. What I have been, yeah. What I have been playing around with a little bit recently is I've just downloaded a few different. Um, apps on my phone here that are accessible with voiceover and uh, one of them is called Avenza Maps and you can um, upload all sorts of different topographic maps of um, of Canada and elsewhere in the world I'm sure um, but it can uh, give you your location using an easting and a northing as opposed to a latitude and longitude and how Eastings and Northings work is the it's a, a six-digit Easting and a six-digit um, Northing, and when you travel further east, that Easting will increase, and the final digit in that six-digit number is a distance in meters. So I'm, um, you know, this is how you, those are the the numbers you would produce when navigating with a, a topographic map. If you wanted to tell someone over a radio or a cell phone where you were, you'd look on your topographic map. And you would give them your location using an easting and a northing as opposed to a lat and a long. Right. Um, so, you know, theoretically, if this events and maps, which is accessible with voiceover, can tell me where I am using an easting and a northing, somebody else who's sighted could look at a topographic map and, you know, and could tell me where various destinations are on the map using that easting and a northing. And then I would at least know, you know, how far off I am east or west or north and south and then with the accessible compass apps there's maybe an opportunity for me to be somewhat more involved in the in the decision making in the field and the route planning and stuff because I, I could um at least know where i am in relation to these other known points right so do those maps work offline then they do yeah they do work offline see the wheels are turning i'm telling you there's there's a, there's yeah, a the patchwork solution for everything well, you're you're um, you're sort of making me think of my friend Anthony, who was uh, looking for a way to um, mark trails. Oh, okay. And uh, I wonder if you could actually use that to mark trails. Sorry, wheel wheel turning. I'll I'll yeah, ponder well, that a little while longer. Give it. Yeah. Give us a week. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us a week. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's doable. It'll it'll tell you where you are, and you you know you can plot waypoints along your trail. And then uh, at least you'll know your however many meters, you know, north or south or east or west or whatever of uh, your next waypoint. So yeah, theoretically, I think you could. You know, you're still gonna have to find a way between those two points, but you'll know where you are in relation to the next one. Hmm. And we put Navilens codes in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, the technology's uh, it's 
there's a lot of technology out there that I feel like yeah. if you pair the right technology with the right problem, there's a solution out there for everything. You can make it happen. And and if not, yeah. there's there's some student who's willing to do a study project to try and get it done. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Tyson, thanks again for uh for joining us and uh best of luck with all that skiing that backcountry skiing yeah thanks guys thanks for having me this has been really cool i've I've never done a podcast before and this has been uh yeah this has been awesome neither have we (laughs) (laughs) this year (laughs) right on Awesome, Tyson. All right. Well, best of luck and uh, take care. And hey, listen, we'll have you on again in a year and you can tell us uh, some more adventures. Yeah, and we're here yeah, for awesome. you. So I'd call like us that. anytime. Yeah, that would be cool. All right. All right. Right on. Thanks, Perfect, guys. sir. You know what? I, I, was, I should have asked that question a lot earlier about what backcountry uh, skiing was, but I just didn't want to seem stupid. But like, honestly, like, I just thought maybe it was the same thing as cross country. Maybe it was just like a different. Like, you know, it's like back bacon and bacon. It's kind of the same thing. I don't know why people add the back part it's of it. It's extreme skiing. Really? Yeah, yeah so clearly. Around these parts, it's best known for call-outs for search and rescue because the people who do it here are knobs. They're totally unprepared. They decide, oh, I'm going to go off the backside of Cyprus, and they end up somewhere down in a gully, and they have to come in with helicopters and winch yeah. them out. But Unnecessary I, mountain. The way... The way Tyson and his his uh, cohorts go about it is an entirely different process and considerably better thought out. So it's very planned. It sounds like. Yeah. Oh yeah, it have to. You have to. Yeah. Planned and executed. Absolutely. Yeah. Know the routes. They know the terrain. They've done all the you know the outlooks on the weather. They've got all the gear. They've got the rescue equipment. Right. If they get into trouble, they can get themselves out of trouble. Well, and I'm sure, you and know. they you know everybody knows where everybody is. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to make the pun when he was talking about uh, avalanche stuff, I was saying, "Oh, wow, you could really get buried in your work," but uh, <laughs> never, never got the chance. Damn it! Damn uh, these damn Zoom, Zoom recordings. You can't do it like we used to be able to when we're at the in the guitar. Terrible. Version. Well, we could go back and try Skype. No. <laughs> no. No. Nah. Webex. Go to meeting. Okay, lads. Nah. Time to wrap this up. All right. right. Well, 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 seeing as you're here, Rick, why don't you tell people uh, where they can get in touch with you if they need their stuff fixed? Stuff fixed. I fix all kinds of stuff. Uh, You can catch up with me at chaostech at shaw.ca or my website, which is www.chaostechnicalservices.com. And that is chaos, C-H-A-O-S. That's correct. Dot com. (laughs) that was ryan Uh, hey ryan yes where can people find us they can find us online at www.atbanter.com see i had to jump in there before he did it because i I know he's trying to steal all my lines and telling me i'm not paranoid about this Uh, where else hey rob where else can they find us (laughs) wow does it feel flurry uh they can also find us now, now I'm derailed. They can also. Well, we did the what? Did we do the website? <laughs> yeah, we did the website. Oh, God. Yeah, you're, okay. you're social uh, media can, now, buddy. Okay. They, <laughs> they, they can also find us on all the social media feeds: Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Woohoo! They can, where can they email us, Ryan? They can email us at cowbell. <laughs> 
find the cowbell. They can email us at cowbell at atbanter.com. <laughs> My cat doesn't like cowbell. Well, that's going to about do it for us. <laughs> My wife is pouring tea. I'm going away. Goodbye. All right. All right, everybody. That is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.